Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 116th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I have a co-host on COVID Calls, whom you've met before in recent weeks, Shivani Patel. Shivani, let me turn it over to you. Hi, you guys. I'm Shivani. Um, I'm a finance and econ major at Drexel, and I'm also a production assistant with um, Scott here at COVID Calls. Um, today, we'll be talking about the upcoming K-12 grade school year in the midst of the pandemic with Angela Minor, Rebecca Martinson, and Mark Kyerleiber. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, August 31st, 2020, there are 25,318,901 confirmed cases globally according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center up from 24,554,491 cases on Friday. Of those, 6,014,013 are in the USA, up from 5,892,779 on Friday. There are now a total of 183,312 deaths reported in the USA, up from 181,265 Friday, still over 1,000 deaths per day. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. We'd like to continue that now. Today's headline is Mississippi teacher's death during first week of school stokes COVID-19 outbreak fears by Adam Ganoche. Uh, this was published on August 6, 2020 um, in Mississippi Today. So here's the article, the obituary. A Lafayette County, Mississippi teacher died while self-quarantining with COVID-19 symptoms, prompting fears that an outbreak could occur the week the district teachers and students returned to classrooms for the first time since March. Nicoma James, a 42-year-old teacher at Lafayette Middle School and an assistant high school football coach, died on Thursday, the district superintendent Adam Pugh told Mississippi Today. Though teachers and students across the district returned to the classroom the week of August 6th for the start of the school year, James did not. No one has told me officially that he had COVID, but I do know he was self-quarantining, Pugh said. James was with students all summer doing football workouts, and Pugh said district officials were conduct conducting contact tracing to determine which students might have been exposed. In my 30 years in education and the last 12 as a superintendent, I've lost more sleep over keeping kids safe than anything, Pew said. Does all this have me worried? Absolutely. I want to keep all of our students as safe as I possibly can. This also worries me a great deal. Students of most public schools across the state were to return to the classroom as Mississippi has become, the, has become of the world's most dangerous COVID-19 hotspots. The week of August 6th, Governor Tate Reeves, the only elected official who could delay the start of school at the state level, announced that he would allow most schools to reopen in person this month. In doing so, Reeves ignored the advice of the state's top medical experts who had publicly urged the governor to postpone school reopenings until early September. Many health experts and education advocates promptly blasted Reeves' decision. 
The Mississippi Association of Educators called the decision reckless and irresponsible and said that the decision puts students and educators and their families at risk. The Corinth School District, which was the first district in the state to reopen schools in late July, was managing an outbreak at all of its schools. As of early August, at least six students and two teachers had tested positive for the virus and close to 150 students were quarantined. Dr. Carrie Wright, the state superintendent of education, was asked if she anticipated a similar situation as most districts resume in-person instruction this month. Let me just say, I won't be surprised, Wright said, because I think that COVID is taking no prisoners and it has no boundaries. It knows no political class, class it knows no socioeconomic class. I think that what we've got to do is be incredibly diligent and follow through. Wright continued, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs said, if everybody would just follow the basic rules, we would be in much better shape, meaning everybody wearing a mask, everybody social distancing, and everybody washing their hands and making sure hygiene areas are clean. He said that would go such a long way, so we've got to really rely on our schools and our principals and our teachers and our superintendents to do exactly that. Pugh, who was audibly upset during a phone interview, called James an excellent educator who was loved by his students and colleagues. I've known James since he was 13 years old because he was a student of mine in one of my very first classes, Pugh said. He was such a loving person and a brilliant young man. We're devastated by this. This has been a really, really rough day. I'd like to hand it over to Scott now. Okay, thank you for reading that, Shivani. And let me um, introduce our guests now. We're gonna turn to our conversation. And we have uh, three real experts on today to talk about K through 12 education and the return to the school year. Angela Minor began teaching in Baltimore County, Maryland in 1995 and began at Pinsbury High School in 2003. She teaches a variety of grades and levels, including AP government, US history and current world issues. She will be instituting a new course she co-created this year titled Issues and Advocacy, Class, Race, and Gender in America. Angela also teaches graduate classes in education with the Regional Training Center, which is affiliated with LaSalle University and TCNJ. Angela has a strong interest in politics, service, and advocacy. Rebecca Martinson became a teacher in 2011 after a career as a nurse. She teaches medical science to 11th and 12th grade students with this class, including nursing assistant training. Ms. Martinson still holds her nursing license as well as a teaching certificate. Mark Heyerlieber is a senior writer and reporter at The 74, a national K through 12 education news website where he writes about equity and school safety. Mark's work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian and other publications and you can read his latest reporting at www.the74million.org. Mark, Angela, and Rebecca, thank you so much for making time to join Shivani and myself on COVID calls today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks. I think we'll like to start the way that we uh, usually do on COVID calls, which is to just get a sense of where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. So um, with that in mind, I think, can we start, Rebecca, with you? Sure. Um, so I'm in Washington State um, in the west side and right now our transmission rate is relatively stable we had declining numbers for several months um, you may know that washington was the site of kind of that first um, those first diagnosed cases of COVID in the country and 
we closed our schools in March. Um, we locked down pretty well. And we did um, flatten our curve, decrease our transmission rate. As things started opening up again in mid-May, we did see our numbers start to um, increase. And we had a, a rather difficult um, July and August with really increasing numbers. And now we've sort of plateaued. We're definitely higher than we were um, in May, but things seem to be stabilizing. We'll see. We'll see. We're, we don't have high, um, we don't seem to have high buy-in in all of our communities as far as masking and distancing measures. What does that fluctuation meant right now in terms of the starting the school year? It's meant that um, in places, it, in places where community desire seems to be highest for schools to start, um, transmission seems to also be highest because of that lack of willingness to um, participate in public health mandates. At this moment, my district um, is opening all remote, as are most districts in my general area. There are some outliers, but um, our state superintendent and governor did um, lay out some fairly stringent requirements um, before we could consider in-person learning. Angela, same question for you. Um, where are you calling from and what's the pandemic situation there? How's it impacting the school return? Sure, uh, I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm actually in uh, Lower Bucks County. So I'm about um, 10 minutes from Trenton, 20 minutes from Philadelphia. Um, we were initially the area of the state um, that got hit pretty hard. One of the first uh, areas, um, a, a neighboring county, Montgomery County, was one of the worst hit. Um, we've had a total of about 138,000 cases in Pennsylvania. Um, we saw a recent uptick, so we were pretty stabilized. Um, we saw in August about a month of steady decreases. And... Um, in my county, we've had about seven, 7,700 cases, um, 39 new cases as of Friday. Um, so uh, I would agree, it's very different depending on what part, similar to Washington, it's very different depending on what part of the state you were in. Um, we've had some larger protests in central and further western Pennsylvania, um, so closer to Pittsburgh. and. Um, we've had less of those protests in this area, although certainly there are pockets. Um, how that's impacted school with our township system, um, each township has kind of decided on their own what they're doing. So we have some schools in the state that are opening fully. We have many that are doing a hybrid option. Um, my school district actually is, to my knowledge, the most conservative in Bucks County. Uh, we are staying virtual until the end of January, 2021. Um, part of that was due to scheduling issues um, because we are kind of uniquely scheduled at our high school. Um, and part of it is we have a relatively conservative board of education in terms of um, following public health guidance. So that's kind of where we are right now. That's fascinating. So you're the only district in the state of Pennsylvania that's already put that date on the calendar that, that far ahead? Um, I'm not sure about in the entire state. I do know that most of our neighboring um, districts in Bucks County have set 
um, a much um, more lenient schedule. So for example, uh, a neighboring district is going to be virtual until the beginning of October, then they're moving hybrid. Um, the district that I live in, my daughter will be um, virtual until the first marking period is over, which is early November. And then their, their plan as of now is to give parents an option of remaining virtual or going hybrid. Um, so um, none of my dis surrounding districts, at least public schools, are fully opened. Mm. Uh, so most of them are on some sort of hybrid virtual model. So um, Mark, let's, let's turn to you. Where are you calling from and, and what's the situation there? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm calling from Brooklyn, New York, uh, which uh, New York City was one of the first uh, cities to, to get hit really hard by the pandemic early uh, this year. But it's looking a lot different today uh, than it did, um, you know, what, five months ago at the end of March, early May, uh, where the city was very much a ghost town. Um, quite unusual to see some busy places, uh, you know, tourist hubs, uh, Times Square, empty. Um, the city is starting to, uh, to liven up a little bit in terms of, you know, walking around. People are back outside, uh, for better or for worse, um, as, you know, as it warmed up and became summer. Um, in terms of the education, uh, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, so New York City has the largest public school system in the country, and it's the only large uh, major school system in the country uh, to plan for a, a hybrid reopening model. So as of now, you know, the, the, the city does plan to allow for some in-person learning um, once, once uh, the year resumes or begins. Um, We'll see, we'll see how that goes. Okay, well, thank you all for, for situating us. Uh, we got the East Coast and the West Coast locked down. So um, Shivani, why don't, you, why don't you take it? Yeah, so I'd like to direct this first question to Rebecca. So um, in your New York Times op-ed um, from July 18th, you write, um, every day when I walk into work as a public school teacher, I am prepared to take a bullet to save a child. In the age of school shootings, that's what the job requires. But asking me to return to the classroom amid a pandemic and expose myself and my family to COVID-19 is like asking me to take that bullet home to my own family. I won't do it and you shouldn't want me to. So Rebecca, why did you write this op-ed? What was the initial reaction? So when I first wrote the op-ed, my district had not um, laid out any firm plans either either way. And no districts in Washington state had. We're still actually waiting for a few. My my district didn't have a plan. And as I looked around um, and I heard from teachers around the country, specifically places in the southeast coast, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, they've been back and they've been back for a while now. Um, I realized that we were out of time to make a decision and that if my district was not willing to make a decision, I was going to need to start making decisions on my own. And that's, um, that's sort of how that was born. Um, so just to follow up, um, just what about the teachers who can't like walk away from their jobs due to their circumstances? For example, what if their job is their only source of income that they have? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, Absolutely. I, I do understand that 
standpoint. To be clear, um, this is what I do for a living. And leaving this job would mean that my income leaves as well. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the rumors, but writing an occasional op-ed does not pay very well. Um, so teaching is my career. It is what I do for a living. And what I would say to those younger teachers and the teachers who find themselves in an impossible situation, and I know they're out there, um, it shouldn't be their call. It, it shouldn't be their responsibility. And I think it has been our policy or lack of policy around our Department of Education that when we have a problem we can't fix or don't have the political will to fix, we just push that down to teachers and have them fix that problem for us. And of course, we've done it. But now you're asking me to gamble with my life, my family's life, and the lives of the families of the students in my classroom. And I don't know if it's my training as a nurse or if it's me being a parent of four kids, but that was a bridge too far for me to cross this time. And asking anyone to do that is not appropriate. Yeah, I, and I completely agree with you on there. Um, so how did people react to your op-ed? Your... Well, it wasn't all positive. Um, I'm sure that's a shock. Um, I did get, um, I got several emails to my work to let my boss know that I'd written that op-ed that I put my own name and identified my school in. Um, they were aware that I'd done it. Um, so I had uh, several calls for me to be fired. Uh, I had a few death threats, which I thought was interesting because I'm a teacher and I'm saying it's not safe to go into the classroom. But I also heard from thousands of teachers, thousands, who said, yes, <laughs> as a matter of fact, we need a plan and we're not capable of making the plan. So why should a teacher be writing their will? Why should they be deciding to walk away from their life's career? Or um, I read an article this week about a teacher that went back to school and she's sleeping in a tent in her yard because her husband has underlying medical conditions. Why are we doing that? There's a problem here. And the problem is not with teachers, it's at the top. And that's a really interesting point you bring up there, um, Rebecca, because I actually remember while I was doing some of my research for this, I remember reading an article about how um, a way that some teachers have been bringing, you know, using their voices to show this to admin. Um, they've been writing their own obituaries. Um, that's the one way that I've been seeing teachers use their voices. Um, I'd like to turn this next question to Mrs. Minor. For listeners who don't know, um, Mrs. Minor was actually my um, AP government teacher when I was a senior in high school. So I'm really thrilled to be talking with you, um, even though it's under these terrible circumstances. <laughs> but Nevertheless, so um, Mrs. Minor, you work at a school district that has students from families from a range of economic situations. And it's no surprise that this will create digital, digital divides in terms of accessibility to devices and internet, reliance on school meals, childcare, et cetera. So as classes move online during COVID-19, what are disconnected students going to do? Hi, Shavani. 
first of all, you know, it's always great to talk to you. So um, this is something that's actually not unique to my school. This is an issue for schools all over the country. And I think COVID has really um, exacerbated the inequalities that have long been there uh, in terms of funding and infrastructure and internet and all those things. Um, I will say I've listened to every meeting that my district has held. Um, I've listened to every education committee they've held. Um, so a couple of things that we've done. One of the things I'm really happy about is we actually created a new position, um, which is amazing considering uh, that we've eliminated so many other positions, um, but we've created a director of equity and diversity. Um, I will say the impetus for that really was the George Floyd uh, killing and the protest and our district um, kind of said, we need to get our act together and making sure that we have, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> curriculum uh, that meets the needs of all students in hiring. Um, but really what that's morphed into because of COVID is looking at issues of equity socioeconomically and making sure that all of our kids and families have what they need. So I will say we have a one-to-one -one initiative at my school um, for grades six through 12. So those students have had um, Chromebooks, which is great. Uh, we also have the ability to set students up with um, internet providers that are donating services. Uh, where we run into some problems is at the elementary school level because we do not have one-to-one -one there. So for the time being, uh, our kindergarten teachers have been instructed to create paper packets of work for students, uh, which is not ideal. Um, we also um, have some families that have stepped up and said that we will give our Chromebook to a, a family that needs a Chromebook. We have them, which is great, community helping community. We are planning on serving uh, or providing lunches for students. Um, they are still working out the logistics of what that will look like. We did that in the spring as well. Um, we are actually making specialized kits for students. So for our uh, example, our family consumer science classes, they do um, fashion and fabrics, sewing, um, cooking classes. Those kids are gonna actually have entire kits that they can pick up that has everything they need in there. Um, so they don't have to worry about their parents buying groceries for them to do the curriculum, which is fantastic. Um, and then my bigger concern with equity is with our students with special needs. And I still would like to see a better plan to help our students um, with special needs. We have shifted a lot of our paraprofessionals to one-on-one -on -one aid. So they will actually be in the home um, with students, um, but that's something we need to work on. And then childcare, obviously, is an issue. We are not allowing our buildings to be used for any childcare um, at all, but we are working with local childcare providers, um, the traditional before and after school um, provider, um, about looking at alternative places that we can connect parents um, to safe places for their kids um, to work from. Uh, and we're also providing tutoring services for students using uh, volunteers who um, following social distancing guidelines, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of our plan, um, which I'm really glad that we have one. Um, obviously there are gonna be some um, problems that we're gonna need to address as they arise. We start, in, uh, we start school next week with our students. Angela, can I just follow up real quick? Having that, um, that extra time that you were talking about before, I mean, you don't have extra time in terms of needing to be uh, teaching again, but that extra time in terms of the return, the physical return to the classroom. 
you know, so different from what Rebecca was describing earlier. Um, could you say a little bit more about what's that in enabled in terms of teacher confidence? I know it's probably hard to measure, but you know, sure. just the variety of, of options and ways that you were thinking about dealing with these issues seems so rich compared to what I've heard in many other in many other settings. Um, so where it originated, um, we actually have um, teachers that serve as technology mentor teachers. Uh, we were going to slowly transition to a new um, operating system. And um, we're basically told we're not slowly doing it anymore because we're virtual. We need to get all teachers on board with this technology. And the concern was that's going to take a while. So what our district did was start offering training early in the summer. So, for example, I did all of my training for this new system in early July. I'm a planner. That's what I do. You can ask Shivani. Um, and then I was able to spend the summer starting to build those courses. Um, but some teachers are actually doing the training this week. So that, that extra time was really meant for us to be able um, to get training on this system and allow administrators um, to make sure that we are all comfortable as we go live next week. So that's uh, really why that additional uh, week. We would normally have started school today actually with students. Um, so giving us that extra time was really meant to create a comfort level with new technology to, to let parents know that this is not the emergency virtual learning of the spring because that um, they, they can't think about it that way. This is going to, to be as much as possible um, authentic teaching as close as we can be even though we're not in a room with our kids. So for me as a teacher, that extra time is invaluable. I spent today um, going through kind of the nooks and crannies of this new system uh, and uh, helping talk some of my colleagues down because they're so nervous about using all of this. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful that our district was proactive in this particular area. Mark, I'm just bringing up on, on screen here a link to an article that you published in the, uh, the 74 media on August 10th about the mask mandates. And if people want to go check out this article, this this was um, this photo went viral in early August, crowded hallway in a Georgia school where you don't see a lot of students wearing masks. Can you take us into this discussion a little bit? What does this photo tell us about the challenges that teachers, administrators, parents, everybody is facing as we go back to school, those are trying to go back into the into the school buildings when it comes to masks, social distance, quarantine. Take us into that discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, I think this this uh, story about this this viral photo and, uh, you know, how people reacted to to the image uh, across the country online is really illuminating of you know what a lot of schools across the country are are really going to face as they as they return to in-person learning and it shows really just you know the hurdles that school leaders face and in, in, in crafting policies that uh keep uh the community safe but also have buy-in from you know parents and from from students who attend the schools so so this viral photo was taken by a student 
Um, it received a lot of uh, backlash from you know the the school district that ended up actually suspending uh, uh, and, and then going against that suspension that the students who took the photographs. Um, the school district doesn't have a, a policy requiring um, you know that children uh, or teachers wear masks every day at school, like you know some other school districts now have. Um, it shows you know there's really a big, um, you know, divisive political war in the outside world uh, among, you know, adults over, uh, you know, public health rules and, and, and whether or not to, to wear masks. And I was really interested as, you know, um, students start returning to the classroom, how, how that might play out in, in schools and, you know, how schools are going to enforce mask policies, whether they have them and, and you know, uh, some of the complications around, you know, children in masks, especially young kids, uh, do the masks fit? Um, are they going to, um, you know, wear them all the time? What happens if a kid uh, wears it on their chin or not over their nose, like we see uh, among, uh, you know, some of us as we as we shop in the grocery store. So um, certainly, you know, the masks uh, have become a, a symbol for um, what, you know, a divisive political issue on the outside, but it's also a really complicated issue uh, at, in schools. Um, and that's just something that, uh, you know, it, I've been following. It's, it's ignited uh, several lawsuits at this point um, from, from parents who don't want to uh, send their children to schools with masks all day. Um, and I think, you know, that's, you know, the, the debate over how schools, you know, should work to keep kids safe as they return and whether or not they have buy-in from, uh, from families is something that's we're just now starting to, to see, and it's gonna become a really interesting topic uh, over the next, well, like year. Mark, we have one question come up from uh, a viewer who's asking about if, if you come across um, situations where kids couldn't wear masks due to breathing issues. I mean, we had a great COVID calls discussion last week with experts in special education, yeah, all sorts yeah. of I, issues I, out there with special needs. And, you know, uh, one size doesn't fit all in terms of policy, nor does it with masks and other protective devices. Has that entered the conversation in ways you can chart? Uh, well, I think that it's an important one. I mean, so uh, certainly the, the recommendation from health officials by and large is that um, kids above the age of two uh, should wear masks in public places with a few exceptions and one of those exceptions certainly is uh you know children with with special needs whether that's you know maybe related to their breathing or you know maybe they have uh autism and would react negatively emotionally for example um related to, to having something that covers their face that uh obstructs them uh so i i think that that's a really valid uh concern um, <laughs> I, I, it, it's a challenging one though too, right? Certainly schools have an obligation to, uh, 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 you know, as required by federal law to, to serve a, uh, equitably children with special needs. So mm -hmm. um, it'll be interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I can answer anything beyond that, that it's just, it, it's definitely a, 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 a challenging um, 
issue that we have to, to grapple with. I want to ask this question to all of you guys, but we'll start with Mark first. Um, Mark, so how does the mass debate collide with the recent surge in Black Lives Matter protests? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, maybe in the last, well, especially in the last eight years, there's been a lot of discussion and education around um, student discipline. And, uh, you know, some school districts going, to, with with a, a you know a less strict uh, approach you know beyond suspensions uh, into things like restorative justice um, after George Floyd's death certainly ignited protests across the country uh, you know involving you know law enforcement and uh, disparate arrests among um, uh, Black Americans uh, but it also had a really really interesting and, and pretty big impact on uh, American schools uh, districts from Minneapolis to uh, to Oakland to Milwaukee uh, ended their contracts uh, with police departments uh, so they have these contracts to, to place school resource officers as they're often called in their classrooms and how I see this, uh, you know, having an interesting collision is that, you know, if a school district is going to have a mask policy, how are they going to uphold that policy? And what are they going, you know, what are they going to use uh, to enforce that policy? Um, and this did come up uh, among uh, school-based police officers at their national conference where, you know, they, they certainly acknowledged the fact that there was this national protest movement saying, hey, uh, replace police officers with guidance counselors. And they uh, interestingly said, um, you know, as police officers, they don't want to be involved in the enforcement of mask policies. It's not their job to enforce, um, you know, issues that they believe are, uh, you know, classroom management uh, type of issues, that would be the role of school administrators and not police. Um, interestingly, on the flip side, you know, um, an expert with the, with the um, group, uh, Georgia Appleseed, which opposes uh, harsh discipline policies and wants to take a, a more um, restorative justice approach, they also, you know, are in the same boat saying, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't uh, suspend or expel kids or give a sort of like um, negative disciplinary consequence for uh, for children who don't wear masks. But then that opens the question of how do you uh, enforce a policy? And certainly the answer there is, you know, um, you, you know, at least among, you know, advocates who support that approach is, you know, more uh, education around the importance of masks and how they maybe help spread the uh, you know, the disease. Thank you for that, Mark. Uh, we'll go to Rebecca next and then Mrs. Minor, if you can answer that. Uh, so um, the same the same question then? Yes, how does the mass debate collide with Black Lives Matter actions? So I think that, um, you know, I'm definitely not an expert and I can certainly point you to some that are better equipped to speak to this. But I do think that one thing that is very um, similar in between the two movements is that it's been turned into such a political um, juggernaut. So we, we've actually seen, and I don't remember 
which state this was in this week a remote teacher had a black lives matter virtual poster in her virtual classroom and parents complained she was placed on administrative leave which was let later reversed um, because the parent believed that to be a terrorist organization because that's what her news media is feeding into her living room at the same time and I don't know if this is as big on the East Coast as it is on the West Coast, but this mask denialism um, or COVID is a hoax. And somehow for certain subsets of our population, wearing a mask is seen as unpatriotic and a violation of their civil rights. And so we're seeing that of, of course, of course, black people shouldn't be murdered by police. Why is this political? Why is this a problem for people? Of course, we should try to keep elderly and otherwise sick or chronically ill people from dying in a pandemic. Why is that political? And um, again, it's nonsense. And it's nonsense to take, I think, attention away from these bigger issues of the fact that um, our schools are wildly underfunded, especially in communities that serve black and brown populations primarily. And our public health structures are wildly underfunded. And by stirring up this emotional call to action on nonsense, we're taking that um, that attention away from the massive failings at the federal and state level. Um, I think you also have the issue of um, this idea of um, this, we're willing to gather as people to protest. So why aren't we then willing to go back to school in person, right? So I went to a protest. It was actually the first time I was out of the house since March. Uh, every single person there wore a mask. You try to do social distancing until more and more and more people come. That makes it a little tough. Um, but I can say I was nervous until I saw the fact that all of these people here for this, um, this important cause were following the masking guidelines. Right? And that's what I see uh, from the majority, certainly not all, but the majority of protesters. Um, but I do uh, agree with Rebecca that that's kind of been um, used as this political pawn, right? You also have the, well, if you can show up to protest in person, you can show up to vote in person, right? Um, and then you also have, again, the, if you can show up to protest, you can go into classrooms, which those are all very different activities that come with very different risk. Um, but I certainly do see this, this idea of a protest um, being used as a way to kind of discount the need for masks sometimes and, and discount the concern over people gathering in schools sometimes, for sure. Well, and I heard an analogy recently that I thought was just brilliant. Um, if there are seatbelts on your bus, you should wear them. But if your bus is on fire, you should go ahead and get off. And that's kind of how I feel about the Black Lives Matter protest. This is a defining moment in U.S history and our bus is on fire and so even though it might come at some polit at some personal risk it might be time to get off the bus this is um 
putting it in that context, you know, it really resonates with some of the discussions we've had on COVID calls with public health researchers. And we talked with Peter Chin Hong earlier in the spring. I asked him this same exact question, but from a medical perspective, um, you know, how can a doctor or a public health official, what, what should they say to someone who says, should I protest? And he said, look, it's, it's accepted public health um, right now. It's not controversial at all that protesting against structural racism is a public health measure but allowing it to be defined um, you know, out of that and, and defining health out of it or trying to take the politics out of it is a move he said that um, has its own, its own agenda. With that, you know, sort of moving into this space of government politics, I wanna, um, I wanna bring it into that a little bit because I think you know, education is an issue that everyone has, we've all been in school, we all have opinions about, and I don't have to tell you all this, um, and you hear everyone's opinions, I'm sure, but what a complicated set of actors. I mean, we have from Betsy DeVos, the president of the United States, we have individual teachers in the classroom, and then in between that, and the students, of course, we have, we have school superintendents, we have governors, we have also unions involved. I think it's been very hard for me to, to figure out who have been the most crucial actors as we prepare for the school year to start? And I guess I wanted to get some of your perspectives on this. Angela, I'd like to start with you. You know, where have been the most important from your perspective and, and you teach government um, sort of leverage points? Is it the relationship between unions and governors? Is it the relationship between the US Department of Education and, and governors? Is it between classes? classroom teachers and their union reps. It's, and I'm sure it's probably different in different places, but it's been hard for me to draw a beat on that. Uh, yeah, I would say, first of all, I don't know that anybody would say that the U.S. Department of Education is relevant at all in these conversations. Um, I find it interesting that Betsy DeVos, who's made a career of saying um, parents should be able to choose and online charters are great, is now all of a sudden saying, no, kids need to go to brick and mortar schools. Well, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there for me. Uh, but I don't see them as being particularly relevant. I would say really to me as someone who follows politics and has been involved, I was a, an officer in my union. Um, we are often as union members, um, the public perceives us to have much more power than we do in many parts of the country. And, and I'm speaking as a, as a teacher in Pennsylvania where we do have teachers unions, we do have the right to strike. Um, our union, beyond putting out um, the sense of urgency for our district to keep our staff healthy, has not really um, been involved in the decision-making. We've had a series of focus groups of educators that I've been a part of, but by and large, the things that we agree on in those focus groups are not the same things that get implemented by our board. So for my particular situation, our elected school board and our superintendent have been following county and state guidelines much more than any other guidelines. Um, our, our Bucks County um, health guidelines in terms of social distancing and our state guidelines in terms of um, whether we can be virtual or not, uh, recommended spacing, all of those things. The federal government has pretty much not come into play in our conversations at all. I will say that. Mark, is that resonating with, I mean, you've got a sort of national perch on this. What's your take on the in 
sort of crucial levers of, of power and decision making right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, picking up on what Angela is saying, certainly the Trump administration has um, power in, in that they can, you know, be persuasive. Um, but education is very much an issue of local control. Um, the, the federal government doesn't have, you know, a whole lot of power in, in uh, education decision making. So it really is up to, um, you know, local decision, you know, local leaders and parents and activists in those communities that are really deciding what uh, the school districts in their in their communities do. And I, I'll, I'll turn to an example uh, where this has become a really interesting political fight is in Florida. So um, state officials in Florida, um, you know, released a, a, an order saying that uh, brick and mortar in person school has to, you know, resume. And, uh, you know, er earlier this in, in the summer, the uh, American Federation of Teachers, the second largest union uh, for educators in the country, authorized uh, like safety strikes saying, you know, uh, our teachers are allowed to, to strike if, if the schools are, you know, reopening under, under health conditions that they found to be unsafe. And, um, that you know that politics is playing out in Florida in the sense that you know the local union uh, there did sue the state uh, to um, prevent that order uh, you know requiring schools to reopen and and that's still playing out in the in the court but right now you know the um, you know a judge's opinion is that uh, you know, that order has been halted and uh, for the time being it, it, it's a, a victory for local decision making uh, you know even more so than the state level it's a it's a it's more of a school district uh decision making process as to, to whether in those local communities you know it's safe to return to in-person learning and, and what other um you know protocols that the district is going to any any given district is going to take i just want to stay with this because you know we're, we're learning a lot about federalism in america right now and you know we we hear about Federal government a lot. I see. I see that um, Angela's smiling when I say that. That uh, and and I want to get your your take on this. Both you and, and Rebecca, um, we pay a lot of attention to federal policies. It's impossible not to pay attention to the president of the United States, even if you wanted to not pay attention to him. And but you're telling a story of 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 local control um, of counties and states realizing maybe they have powers that they hadn't fully. Uh, known they had or exercising them um, in in ways that they haven't maybe ever or in a long time. And be that as it may, there is still is this power of the national discourse and the symbolism um, of a president who can, with uh, 140 characters, apply a lot of pressure on a governor and that it may not actually shape what ends up happening at the school, but it's still puts tension into the system. And I'm, I'm curious about how you feel that um, as teachers. Rebecca, let me, let me put that question to you first and then Angela. Well, I think um, he definitely has the power to shape public perception. So in my state, we have um, guidelines from our governor that says 75 um, per 100,000 cases, 75 cases per 100,000 people, that is over two weeks two weeks is too high of um, a positivity rate to return to in-person instruction. However, 
there are districts in our state that are um, of the same party as our current president that are feeling immense pressure, even on the local level, to respond. The parents um, in that district pay, in fact, the district I live in, pay the property taxes. They're concerned that they're not gonna get their levies approved. What kind of a different scenario would be be looking at if the president and the secretary of education had come out and said, hey, we might have to do this another year and we're here to support you. It is gobsmacking to me that that hasn't been the response. So we've got Betsy DeVos, who is a billionaire. 90% of funding for schools comes from state and local government taxes and levies. The percentage that comes from the federal government funds things like services for disabled children, national school lunch program. So when billionaire Betsy DeVos, who does very few press engagements through this biggest crisis in the history of education. When she says, go back to in-person learning, no matter what your local state and health departments say, or lose federal funding, what she's saying is that she wants to take food away from hungry children and services away from children with disabilities. And if we're not finding that a shameful dog whistle, I don't know where we are at in education because that's what it is. Angela, let me get your, your take on this. And you've been teaching government and then this is playing out literally on social media and TV every night. Students must be a little bit confused about um, how federalism works at this time. Well, I will say this is part of my first unit that I'm going to start next week. And the lesson I have planned for federalism is actually about uh -huh. mask mandates. And um, it, it is, it's striking to me that we typically talk about uh, the Republican Party as being the party that believes in states' rights, local control, very few mandates from the top down. And now we're kind of reversed that a little bit. Um, where they don't want to give local governments the control. And I, and I do agree um, that it certainly has ramifications. So you do not, as a Republican, want to be on the bad side of the president, right? Because he might make a mean tweet about you and, you know, make your life a little bit sad for a while. Um, but it is amazing to me. And, and somehow in all of this, teachers went from, and it's not surprising to me, but being appreciated in March and April to literally, I saw a hashtag the other day, teachers are not heroes. Um, and this perception um, from, again, I believe, top down that teachers don't wanna go back to work. Uh, and I, I don't know where that, that is coming from considering I'm probably gonna be working harder this semester to make this work for my kids virtually than I've worked in a really long time because you know, you're talking about rewriting everything and, and reteaching um, you know, in a whole new way. Um, but to me, it's just so disheartening and, you know, he had a speech on Friday with 1,500 people, no social distancing, no mask. And the message that sends to his base of support, which is, you know, about a third of the country, makes our jobs more difficult when our schools are trying to make decisions based on public health. And uh, instead, it, it, politics is working its way into a public health crisis like I've never seen in my study of government. Um, but certainly it makes our jobs all the more difficult. 
Uh, and it makes it more difficult, I think, for parents um, to know who to trust, right? So if a vaccine comes out, is that going to solve things? I don't know, because I don't know that parents will trust getting that vaccine if they believe that that process has been politicized. So every single thing uh, involving this disease has now this element of politics, um, which makes it just that more difficult to control. And certainly for us as teachers, it makes it even more difficult for us to do our job. So Mrs. Venner, I kind of want to um, ask next about where you're just talking about their um, parents. How are parents making their opinions heard right now? And the same question goes for teachers. I want to ask this to all of you guys. First, we'll start with Mrs. Minor, then we'll go to Mark, and then Rebecca. Um, I will say that uh, from watching our virtual school board meetings, there are parents who are making their opinions known through um, public comment. And our school board, you know, they are elected. They don't get paid. Um, they will get the gambit of messages. One message will say, I want to go back to school full time, no mask. The next person will say, we all need to wear a mask. And I don't know, you know, they have to rectify that. Um, a lot of them are on social media. I will say I am not on Facebook. I have boycotted Facebook for about two years now. Um, and I have told all of my colleagues to get off of those parent message boards because typically they will make the negative known, right? And those who support you are kind of staying quiet. Uh, teachers, it's always a mixed bag. We, we are limited to what we can say. We're not covered by whistleblower laws. Um, so you're, we're certainly free to express our opinions. However, we are warned by our teachers association that there are limits to that um, when we are posting things. Uh, we have been able to email board members, teachers. We have been involved in some focus groups, as I said earlier. Um, but I do find, again, uh, a lot of what is coming out from the more vocal parents would be the people disagreeing with what our school district has decided to do. Mark, what, what do you have to say about that? Um, how are parents making their opinions heard right now? And the same question for teachers. Yeah, um, well, for, for teachers, certainly uh, they're they're participating right here on the on this uh, <laughs> uh, this call, making you know writing op eds in the New York Times. Uh, you know, there uh, I've heard a, you know a lot about uh, strikes, about protests. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly a, a pretty powerful mechanism for making their voices heard. Uh, you know, parents, when, I, you know, I'll talk specifically on, um, you know, whether, you know, policies around masks in schools. There, there are now a few lawsuits from parents, uh, as an example, um, you know, fr from parents who don't believe their, their students uh, should wear masks uh, in school full day. Um, on the flip side of that, I want to bring the students into it. And, you know, I read this uh, story. Um, it, it was in The Lily, which is um, a publication by the Washington Post geared toward millennial women. And uh, they, they profiled these, these students in Wisconsin who uh, were outraged that the school district was, um, you know, maintaining uh, a dress code. Uh, banning things like uh, spaghetti straps for the rule, you know, for the reason of uh, dis uh, disrupting the educational process. And, you know, these students are arguing, well, you know, kids not wearing masks in schools uh, disrupts the educational process as well. And they actually, uh, you know, released an online petition and a bunch of people signed the petition and the school actually reversed its policy. And so when, when that, that district, uh, 
uh, reopens for, for in-person learning, masks will be uh, required. So that's an example of, te uh, of the youth uh, in schools uh, being, you know, activists and in, in, in shaping the ways uh, that schools serve them. Yeah, um, and just kind of to echo a little bit of what um, Angela said, I, you know, I'm still on Facebook. I, I wouldn't say that that's a good decision I've made for myself, especially in the last few months. Um, and uh, what I think you see is people who are wanting not to wear masks and wanting to return right now, everything back to um, normal, this is a hoax. They're loud. I don't know that they're actually a majority. I think they're very loud. And so, you know, it's, it's anecdotal, but I've talked to a lot of parents who are just wanted a, de a decision one way or another. What are we doing? I just want to know so I can get my ducks in a row. Um, the people, and again, it's anecdotal, but it does seem like it's the it's the same people over and over that are very loud, very persistent. Um, and it is an interesting dichotomy that it's this, the same people want an immediate return to in-person learning that don't think mandatory uh, mask mandates are appropriate. And, you know, at pick one, because, um, I'm, I'm a school teacher. I have a lot of education and a lot of experience and I'm a really good teacher, but it, I'm not your martyr. Your kid's wearing a mask in a room with me, full stop. Regardless of your political opinion on the issue, it's a public health crisis. And can I just add really quickly, Shivani, that I'm glad Mark brought up students because they get left out of the conversation a lot. But students are amazing. I always tell people when, when I talk to some older people and they're like, oh, these students don't even know what they're protesting. I'm like, they absolutely know what they're out there protesting, right? And so we have to listen to students, especially the, those that are older, because they are paying attention. They are, they are reading, they are watching the news, they are listening to science. And, you know, they should be part of this decision making as well. Absolutely. I want to I want to underline that I mean having taught um, first of all I mean complete respect for K through 12 teachers in any setting and uh, in the teaching in the university setting we hear the same thing Angela these students are going out they're protesting um, they may even be adults but they they're they haven't fully you know when they get older they'll understand this these kinds of things we very tired you know um, sorts of discussions and I would tell you having taught um, at Drexel for 20 years and having taught over this summer a course about COVID-19 where we simultaneously talked about um, the pandemic but also about social justice and we also talked the students talk very openly about the world they've grown up in um, and that is a world in which um, they were adolescents at the time of the financial crisis 
Um, they were born around the time of Hurricane Katrina. They um, have grown up with lockdown drills and active shooter drills. And now this, to insinuate that students shouldn't be part of this discussion is to me uh, revolting. And the students, they don't say it that way. They're much more nuanced than what I just said. Um, but I, I think just to come back to some of the things you were saying earlier in our federal, federalism discussion, some of the, the um, things that get passed around maybe as talking points and right-wing news or memes and social media, things like that, those might as well be coming from outer space, at least to the students I've talked to. They are inquiry-oriented, they are facts-oriented, and they are solutions-oriented. Uh, and they're the ones that are going to have to go out and get job, go to college and get jobs in this economy, whatever's coming after COVID-19. I think there's a stronger realism there, frankly, than, than I hear from some who are making these kinds of, of accusations and, and spreading disinformation. I'm in the opinion box right now. I just realized, I'm sorry, I'm taking your time. But I, I think it's important when we engage students to, that we should be hearing hearing their voices loud and clear. I, I want to um, just quick get a quick hit, and Shivani's going to ask next question after this. But Mark, I wanted to follow up quickly with you because I know school safety is your beat. And I had seen, and maybe it was a stray headline, It may this may not be representative, but still discussion of doing active shooter drills in a school district that was also doing social distancing and masking. I mean, the layering here of risk to me at a place which is supposed to represent the, the safest place in the community where everybody should, yeah, we argue about what can be taught, but in the end we come together as a community or we should to agree that this is a safe space. I was distressed by that headline and, and I was just wondering what your take is and the broader impact of COVID-19 on school safety. I mean, sure, I think, I think uh, in a broad sense, the, you know, the challenges that uh, come with, uh, you know, social distancing and, you know, workarounds for conducting class in, in the pandemic era certainly raise a lot of difficult and interesting questions uh, on school safety. Um, you know, one, one that I have heard from, you know, school-based uh, police officers is concern over, and, and others uh, and parents is, is concern over like the idea of outdoor um, teaching or learning, you know, classrooms that are outside, which seems um, from a pandemic perspective, like a really neat solution. However, there are some who are concerned that that kind of throws out all of the alarm and concern over active shooting drills and, uh, you know, protocols around school security and school safety that have been uh, huge over, you know, especially in the last few decades. So, um, I mean, it, it certainly, raises the interesting question of how do you, you know, institute new policies to control uh, the virus while also maintaining, um, you know, protocols for resisting uh, or preventing an active shooter. I, I mean, I, I do think it's important to know that, you know, school shootings, while highly political and highly emotional and, you know, life-altering for everybody involved, um, they, they are statistically rare. Um, and so, you know, keep our fingers crossed that um, we don't have a, a dual tragedy. Um, 
So I know we're over the one hour mark here, but I was just really curious. Um, this goes for all, this question is directed to all of you guys. Um, are there any lessons from other countries, other places around the world um, that you think we should be following in terms of uh, education? Um, Mrs. Minor, if we can start with you and then we'll go to Rebecca and then Mark. I think from, from my reading, I think a lesson is if you open too soon, you're going to be closing, right? So we've had some countries like Israel, for example, that thought it was safe to open and then uh, had an outbreak of cases. And we see that now with the colleges, actually, in the United States, those that are, you know, this domino effect of closing down. Um, we also see a, a lesson in if we get our testing in order um, in nations that have a good testing program, that's key to helping us get back to school, right? So all of these things that we're struggling with um, are why we're, we're not back to school. We need uh, a robust testing program. We need a robust tracing program. So in some cases, uh, I think Senator Murkowski was saying they were still doing that by fax machine, um, which days later. Um, so this, the, the places that are back have the technology and the infrastructure in place. They have the testing in place. Uh, and uh, are listening to public health. They have depoliticized um, the discussion and are letting public health guide them in their decisions. Yeah, and I, certainly Israel um, is definitely follow, followed the model unsuccessfully that the U.S. is following right now, um, by and large. The Let's hope for the best. Um, Uruguay followed um, a much different model. They've been quite successful. They've been quite successful in their reaction to COVID, uh, it, the outbreak in general, but um, in reinstitutioning um, schools, they started with the very young students, very widely spaced mask mandate, and they didn't start until they had their community transmission rate quite low. Um, I think we can get some of our own best bad examples from the, the country we're in right now. So we have the Corinth School District. Day two, there was a child stayed home sick because they went asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic to school the day before. Now we've got over 100 children um, quarantined. We've got 60 at Cherokee that were quarantined. That has actually increased. Um, UNC tried to open, they are now closed. Um, University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa, I hope I said that right. Um, I'm from the place where we call things Puyallup. Um, they're closed, Notre Dame opened and they've closed. Um, we're not being real successful and part of that is our testing. In, in order for testing to make any sense at all, and I know there's this big political thing, well, when you test more, you find more. All right. Um, I teach epidemiology, so that hurts to say out loud. But for testing to be worthwhile, it needs to be actionable. If we're waiting still five, seven, 10, 14 days for test results, that's not actionable. And the contact tracing associated with a two-week delay in testing is a nightmare and it's just not rooted in reality. That's why when we see places opening up in countries like Israel and the United States, we're seeing them close back down because regardless of what the people in power at the top are saying, we do not have adequate testing in this country of 
370 million people. We simply do not. Mark, do you have Mark, did you? <laughs> well, I have to say, uh, I was thinking about it. This is, to be honest, not uh, a topic that I have specifically reported on. Uh, so I don't have a whole lot to, to add, but I, you know, other than, you, you know, maybe some caution that um, all kinds of factors certainly make uh, an education system in one country radically different uh, than that in another country. So I, I, I mean, the one caution that I want to just say is that we probably shouldn't do just a a direct comparison between what's happening in the United States and any other country just because, you know, um, the reaction to the virus is is, is certainly different. Um, and, and that context uh, is certainly going to be really crucial to what that means for uh, schools' ability to reopen. You know, like if, if country A has reopened its schools successfully, um, you know, you need to certainly look at the factors inside the classroom building that have allowed that to happen but you know what factors outside the classroom like their ability to control the spread of the virus uh have also motivated that uh that success just as an example so we're almost up on on time actually we're over time but this is such a good discussion i'm going to get a quick this is a lightning round to take us out um, and the question is this, when the vaccine comes, and there will be one, um, how long do you, what do you expect? How long do you think it's going to take from that moment to get back to something that we recognize as normal in the K through 12 education space? You could also dismiss that question that there is no going back. And I'm, I'm open to that, but I'm curious because we have been treating that vaccine moment in the United States as the, as the, that's the silver bullet. And so let's just get a quick a quick pass through, um, see what you're all thinking on this. Rebecca, let me start with you. Honestly, I think we're a year. I think we're a year to have adequate deployment of a vaccine to reduce our community transmission. We're probably better trying to mitigate the virus at this point and add the vaccine. Mark, same question to you. What are you thinking about the vaccine right now? Uh, well, I, I think that there are, you know, <laughs> <laughs> to take the easy way out of this question uh, is I don't I, I really don't think we're gonna have like I think that you know the pandemic's gonna have um, an impact on the education system for a long time and uh, it'll be really interesting to see what uh, does stick around um, what what artifacts from the pandemic uh, leave their mark on education moving forward but I, I certainly don't think uh, you know we, we may we may resume to some semblance of normalcy but it It'll, the impact will last, I think. I asked the same question of Melissa Kaplan and Sheldon Jacobson last last week around higher ed, and they both said they didn't they didn't they didn't think there was any returning that we're going to move into something new now. This COVID nineteen is a is a new era for education. Angela, I'm going to give you the last word on that. Oh, um, well, quite honestly, I I would agree that I don't think we're anywhere near a vaccine making a return to normal. Because even if we develop the va vaccine, we still have to figure out how to administer that vaccine to millions of people. And I go back to a point I made earlier, I, I don't think there's enough trust in our government right now for some people to be willing to even receive the vaccine, um, which 
I think it's disheartening, but uh, I, I certainly think that that might be the case. And I do, we have part of these focus group discussions. One of our concerns is, um, are our parents going to leave public school and never come back? Are we going to see parents decide that private school is best for them or, or a charter school is best for them? Um, and so that can disrupt our normal for a long time as well. So we really, as teachers, have to do our best to keep our kids engaged and, and keep them loving public education. Well, I, I just want to thank you all for your, for your time and just sort of thank teachers and journalists more generally for what they're doing uh, right now in this time of COVID-19. Shivani, what do you think? Should we release them? This class, <laughs> we've kept them over time. Class is dismissed. Yeah, thank I you. Wanna, <laughs> I want to thank our, our guests, Angela Minor, Rebecca Martinson, and Mike Ki Mark Kierlieber for taking time been a really uh, a great hour and a quarter good discussion. I want to thank everybody for listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls every weekday, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And tomorrow, I'm um, continuing our theme of, of education. We're going to talk about sports. We're going to have Billy Witz from the New York Times to talk about sports and COVID-19. And um, everybody stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock. Thanks again to our guests.